Well, y'all, my name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors at McLean Presbyterian Church, where Matt served before coming here. And I want to tell you both a greeting from our church. I want to tell you how much we and I miss Matt. Um, but we believe that God moves his people to the places that they can do the most good in his kingdom. And so we are incredibly grateful that Matt is here to minister with and, and to you all. Um, without going into a lot of details, um, which we can get to at another time, we, um, we are continuing a thing that Matt said, let's not do a special service for my installation in terms of the sermon. What we're preaching is what we preach, because that's what is best he and the session have been able to discern is what is the right thing. So we're going to simply continue the sermon series that you all have been doing. And so these readings from Daniel 5 were a piece of the next section, the next passage. Um, we had to skip through it because it's a long enough chapter of the Bible that if we read the whole thing, I would then stand up and say, Amen, thanks be to God. And sometimes that might be better than the sermon. You never know. But I would encourage you, have a Bible open or on your phone, some case, because I'm really going to be preaching the whole passage. And I will refer sometimes to things even past what was in the worship guide itself. Um, please, if you would, would you pray with me? <clears throat> God, our Father, we are never ready to come to your word unless the Holy Spirit is working in us to enlighten our minds. But we pray even more, enlighten our hearts. Help us to not even... Or not just simply understand this word, but may it make a difference in us. May we see our Lord Jesus more clearly. Would you do that, we pray, through this scripture, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I need to tell you, my kids, who are now in high school and junior high, have gotten to the age where we have realized they're terribly culturally illiterate because they don't know all the movies that we grew up with. And so we are in this process of doing all the old campy movies on Friday nights with my kids. So we've been through Star Wars 4, 5, and 6. We did 1 and 3 from Indiana Jones, because let's be real, 2 and 4 weren't worth very much. Um, two Fridays ago, we made it to the 1997 campy classic Men in Black. Now, watching the movie again, Agent K memorably said to Agent Janice, don't sir me, young man. You have no idea who you're dealing with. And you guys know this is a common movie trope, right? The villain, even the hero, you don't know who you're dealing with. And you've seen this in life, and so have I, that sometimes it's not a trope. You've seen people who get into either situations or relationships where they get in too deep because ultimately they don't really have any idea who or what they're dealing with i've seen it in business deals i've seen it in relationships i've seen it in counseling situations any number of cases and dealing with god is a really big deal belshazzar the guy who is the acting king of babylon doesn't have any clue who he's dealing with and that leads him to doing exactly the wrong things in a crisis situation and before we pound in too hard, I think we need to recognize that we usually don't either. At least if we look at how we act when things are really going wrong. 
And so here's the point from Daniel 5 this morning. In real simple terms, Daniel 5 teaches us that when we take God seriously, we quit running to the wrong answers to our problems. When we take God seriously, we'll quit running to the wrong answers to our problems. And to understand that in this passage this morning, we're going to look at three things. One, the king's problem. Two, the king's solution. And three, the king's answer. So the king's problem, solution, and answer. So do open a Bible. If you have closed it, please pull it back open to Daniel 5. Let's start with the king's problem. Daniel chapter 5 is one of those scripture passages that makes a whole lot more sense if we know the backstory. So here's the backstory. Let's start with this guy named Belshazzar. From Babylonian sources that archaeologists have unearthed over the years, we know that Belshazzar, the guy who's king in this passage, is the acting king of Babylon. He's the son of a guy named Nabonidus, but Nabonidus, for both political and religious reasons, has absented himself from the capital. He's gone to an oasis in the far south called Tama, and he's ruling from there, and he's left his son Belshazzar ruling Babylon in his place as sort of acting king. And this is, by the way, if you look at verse 16, why what Belshazzar offers Daniel and the wise men, if they can read the inscription, he says, I'll make you third highest in the kingdom. That's because daddy is number one. Belshazzar is number two. And third highest is like the highest thing he has to offer. And both Belshazzar and his father have a huge problem on their hands. The problem is called Persia. More specifically, it's the Persian army, which has been running all sorts of rampant over Babylonian armies for some time now. The Persian armies are led by somebody that in the Bible is called Darius the Mede. That might be another name for Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor. It's possibly a general who worked underneath him. And if you look at the very end of the passage, verses 30 and 31, we know we're now at the very end of the Babylonian collapse in the face of this Persian incursion. So belatedly, Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had returned to face the Persian threat, and he'd led his army to engage in the climactic battle against the Persians at a town called Apis, which was 50 miles north of Babylon. Now, given that it takes more than a day for an ancient army to go 50 miles, that means the Persians had already won the decisive victory that opened the way for them to freely march on Babylon. And so now Belshazzar has a huge problem. They have been beaten, and he's somehow trying to pull together a last gasp defense of Babylon itself, but with the Persians having already smashed the Babylonian army. This is truly a dire life or death situation. Now, if you're the Persians, if you've smashed the army and you're bearing down on the capital city, you've got a couple options. None of them do you really like, because this is a walled city that is highly defended it's gonna take a lot of work to try to conquer Babylon. So option one is to simply storm the city, break through the walls, climb over them. It's gonna take a lot of time, a lot of work, a lot of manpower, and you're gonna take a lot of losses, but you could get it done. Option two is just to camp around the city and wait for about two or three years and starve them out. 
Just keep anything from getting in or out. Sooner or later, you and this siege will make them run out of food, run out of water. And even, by the way, if you're planning to attack, you'll probably starve them out first, because weak warriors who are starving are a whole lot easier to kill than like well-fed, ready warriors. But even better than either of those would be this. What if the populace of Babylon realizes how bad it is, and you can convince them to overthrow King Belshazzar, kill him, and open up the gates and surrender to save their own necks? In other words, if you can get the populace to say, we know who's going to win, let's save ourselves by getting rid of our king. That's going to be cheaper and quicker. So here's Belshazzar's problem. He has to try to rally the troops to defend Babylon against an almost certain defeat, which would mean their own painful death. And somehow he has to try to keep his populace from revolting and killing him to save their own lives. That's Belshazzar's problem, and that brings us to second, the king's solution, what you see in Daniel 5. So what is this banquet? What's this banquet you read about? Well, most likely, this is the attempt to rally his defense. You know, this is, in, in essence, this is a PR stunt. Belshazzar knows that betrayal by his own people is a real present danger, and it's a danger that's going to only get worse as they come under siege. The inhabitants are going to sell him out. So this banquet is an attempt to rally his forces to show that he's not concerned. He goes, guys, we've got this. We've got this huge fortress, and I'm so unconcerned, he basically says, I'm not trying to get ready to live through a siege. Think about it. If you think you're going to live through a siege, how much are you going to eat? How much are you going to drink? As little as you can to last as long as you can, hoping someday some other army will come and deliver you. Belshazzar says, here's how much different, here's how little I care about this. Let's throw a drinking party. Eat as much as you want. This is so little concern, we can throw a feast, not buckle down for a siege. And so this is why you notice verse 1 called out the scene, that he ate and drank, it says what, in front of a thousand. He's saying, relax guys, we can party given how small this Persian threat is. In other words, he's basically staging a pep rally. But it's a pep rally by somebody who knows it's all a front. This is the bravado of a brittle man terrified for his life, which may well explain the heavy drinking, by the way. And it also probably explains why he calls for these things from the temple of the Lord to be brought out. If you look at verses 2 to 4, remember this is all about perception. Even if it's a feeble attempt, this is all about trying to convince people they're okay. So what he does is he calls for the temple instruments that had been captured almost 70 years before when his famous and powerful ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, had captured Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a walled city up in the mountains in a famously restive province. It was a very difficult place to take. So when he calls for the goblets that had been captured from the Jerusalem temple, he's reminding himself and his people to believe that his gods, the Babylonian gods, were strong. He says, look, we had conquered other gods before other peoples. Look what we did to the god of the Hebrews. Well, if we can do that to them, we can handle the Persians and their gods. So he brings out the temple service from Jerusalem to intentionally misuse it, to use it as part of praising their idols, which the Babylonians viewed as their gods, which had led to their success. So he's after keeping his reputation high. He's after political power 
trying, though probably ineffectively, to rally his troops. Remember, the troops that had already lost, because they somehow need to stop the Persians. That's his solution, and before we go on, recognize that it's a bad solution. In face of his problems, this king does exactly the opposite of what he should have done. The king's response is a doubling down on all the things that can't actually save him. Because look at what verse 5 tells us. These aren't real gods at all. They're just hunks of metal, wood, and stone. And he's going to tragically learn that the hard way by the end of the passage. Now, we need to understand, though, or we'll miss the power of this passage for us. The king's response actually makes sense if you think about his understanding of the world. Because he has never seen God act in any way, shape, or form in his entire life. To him, it looks like the Hebrew God is just absent and just a myth. The Hebrews have been slaves in Babylon for 70 years, longer than he's probably been alive. And so in the face of his very real problems, he simply accepts a solution, feeble though it is, that his world offers. Because he's doing what he thinks is the right way, the way everybody in his world would react in this situation, following the wisdom that he knew, but instead he was actually making it all worse. Because he was mocking the God who actually is the only one who could have saved him. He doubles down on the wrong thing until the very moment he finds out that this God is real and he should have taken him seriously. Now before we go on, let's talk about what that means for you and me. You may not feel like you have an ancient army bearing down on you to try to destroy you. Though, let's admit, sometimes we do feel like that, right? When the entire thing at work is going wrong. When the entire rest of the lunchroom or the playground's laughing at you. When friend after friend has disappeared and cut you off. We do feel, we get in similar situations, maybe not as quite as life-threatening, but we feel like we're in hopeless situations. What do you run to? What do you run to? In verse 5, what's your equivalent of gods of wood, metal, and stone? Things we think are going to save us, but in fact are simply going to let us down. Is it your work ethic? Is it your reputation? Your finances? Your following? Your grades and therefore your future job prospects? Your expertise? Your family? Your spouse? Your significant other? What are the things that we think, this is what's taken care of me for so long? What are your equivalents to verse 5, the gods of wood and stone and metal? And recognize why it's so hard to move away from these things. Because the simple fact is we think we're wrong, but we think that they've worked for us for now. This is how I did get to grad school. This is how I did get that good job. This is how I did get some respect finally. These things, the reason it's so hard to move away from our idols is because we think they've worked for us. But the scripture says they haven't. Those haven't really been the things that have been working for you and me, getting us through. When we start to depend on them as functional gods, the things we think are going to deliver us from our troubles, we're not just depending on the wrong thing. We're actually at some level mocking God. Because we're ascribing to those things the things that are really only due to God himself. 
authority, dependability, and all the rest. So let me ask you again, what are you really depending on if you're honest? Now, since this is an installation service, um, Matt, let me speak directly to you for a second. Let me also speak, I think, to the church leadership. It's very easy to double down on failed answers, to double down on worldly answers, even when you're doing the work of a church. And if I answer my own question, far too often the truth is I depend on a lot of things other than God. Matt, you are an incredibly talented guy. You are incredibly smart and incredibly kind. And I think all of us in this room know how often those two do not go together. And, Matt, you have an absolutely unparalleled work ethic. Those are gifts from God. But they are not your security and they are not your success. And it's easy to start depending on them instead of him. And church leadership, when you are working for God, when you're leading here, it will be very easy to depend on things, even without realizing it, that are accepting the world's answers for what we think will make things work out for Resurrection Madison. To do that, to lead a church in what is functionally, in the end, a fundamentally secular way, that's not good leadership, that's faithlessness. It's even mocking God. We have to put our trust in God himself, doing his work in his way, for the church here in Madison, Wisconsin to flourish, for the church in America to flourish, for the church in the world to flourish. Take God seriously. We cannot just run to the world's solutions and ways of doing things. Because what we see in this passage is that this King Belshazzar, he gets an answer. An answer from a greater king. This is not just the answer that King Belshazzar receives. It's the answer that God, the king of all things, gives. So think about it. Everybody is pretty much on edge. After all, they are in this banquet, which is forced fun. Now, when your company throws a happy hour and it's mandatory fun, it never quite feels like it. Everybody's watching the scripted performance, and anybody who's got a brain knows it's hollow. In verse 5, the king finds out that the world he thought he knew, the one of the supremacy of the Babylonian gods, that's not actually the real world. A more real reality suddenly breaks in. A human hand appears starts writing words in the plaster of the wall of the palace. Would that freak you out? Would me. And nobody can deny what just happened. The words appear, news spreads like wildfire through the banquet hall. What are these words and what do they mean? Now in the part of the passage we didn't read out loud, Belshazzar again does exactly what's normal in his world. He does the very same thing Nebuchadnezzar had done in chapter two, he calls the experts, the magicians, the enchanters, the people who do this sort of stuff for a living. These are the PhDs in astrology. And nobody can even read the words, much less understand what they mean. Now, if they had been a bit on edge, you're heading towards really panicked. Because if these were simply Babylonian words, they would have read them, and maybe they would have thought the Babylonian gods were answering them. But these weren't. Most likely, by the way, they were consonants written without vowels, without word spaces. Imagine trying to read that in a language you don't even know. The queen, she may have been the queen mother, both of them were called the queen in their world, comes into the banquet hall, and she shows up and says, basically, don't you know you called the wrong experts? She says, call Daniel, that old dude that Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, the king, 
the one the Bible has reported to us now for a bunch of chapters. She says, call that one the old guy. He'll read it. Daniel comes in. He can and does read it. And here's what it says. It says, many, many, tekel, and parsing. So there are three words, the first of them repeated twice. And these words, it turns out, probably are related to verbs in the language family that Hebrew is part of. Mene comes from the word to count. And Daniel says, God has numbered Belshazzar's days. Tekel comes from the verb to weigh. And here God has weighed in the sense of evaluating Belshazzar and has found him a lightweight. And parson comes from the verb to divide. Because God is going to divide Belshazzar's kingdom between these two great powers, the Medes and the Persians, that have been unified under Cyrus the Great. Now, other people have noted there may even be a double meaning here, because these also can be money terms. And if they're money terms, they're basically going from the most expensive to the least. Mina, shekel, and half, to show how Babylon's empire has been just gradually shrinking, losing its power from Nebuchadnezzar through Nabonidus to now. And people have even suggested maybe there's a third thing that combines the two. Maybe God is saying, God's paid it out. You're a lightweight, so Persia. And verse 24 says it comes to pass that very night. The armies arrive. Darius the Mede, again, either Cyrus the Great himself or his general, takes over the kingdom. Belshazzar's answer was a disaster. It was the exact wrong move, and it left him dead. Now, what should Belshazzar have done instead? Well, that's also in the text, and Daniel's bold enough to tell him. It's in verses 17 to 23. So don't miss the boldness in Daniel. Belshazzar had brought him in and had addressed him in an absolutely scornful way. He said, verse 13, one of the exiles from Judah, not recognizing the roles Daniel had played, the leadership he'd had for decades. And Daniel returns the scorn at some level. What he says in verse 17 is, King, you can keep your gifts. If you want a more colloquial translation, it says, King, stuff your gifts. And then Daniel says, don't you realize you have a different possible answer? Verses 17 to 23, he points back to the occurrences that had happened with Nebuchadnezzar, what was in chapter 4, right before this in the Bible. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, who is Belshazzar's more famous, more competent, and more successful ancestor, also had issues with reckless pride. And it had cost him too. But Nebuchadnezzar, when he had finally been confronted with God in chapter 4, had learned at least at some level to repent. Belshazzar, instead of repenting, has doubled down on his antagonism to God, mocking him and scorning him. In other words, again, King Belshazzar had picked the exact wrong answer. Instead of humbling himself before God like his ancestor, he had instead doubled down on despising God. And so the true king of all the earth, God himself, had found him wanting. Because instead of taking God seriously for who he is, he'd actually rejected and scorned him. Now that was coming back to roost. And Belshazzar's unwillingness to humble himself was now at a moment's notice going to cost him everything. So let me come back now to us. Back to the answer that I asked, what is your functional God? What are your and my gods of wood, stone, and metal when we looked at Belshazzar's solution? What is it that came to your mind a few minutes ago? What would it mean to pick a better answer? 
I mean, in the face of things of life, it does at times feel like there are armies camped against us. It would mean that we finally unclench our fists. We get rid of our hold on the solutions we run to, our pride, our reputation, our finances, our grades, our likes, all those things we think we would save us, we say they're, they're false gods. We start taking God seriously and humble ourselves. So look, sure, get good grades if you can, but they can't save you, God does. Sure, get a good job if you can, but it can't deliver you, God does. Sure, know the right people if you can, but they can't make your life go well. God does that. It would mean we quit turning to ourselves and to those things that we think are the things that will make our lives go rightly. It would mean we learn to pray, that we learn to search the Bible for truth, that we even do some things that seem absolutely crazy to our world. It would mean we quit turning to those other things as our salvation when our life goes wrong. We'd start turning to God. That's true in the difficulties of life, but let me suggest this. You have a far bigger crisis than any of the things you're thinking about right now. There is a far bigger crisis going on in your and my life than what job am I going to get? How am I going to earn income? Will I find that significant other? Will I get the next promotion? How can I make the house payment? And I don't mean to downgrade any of those things. They occupy our lives and minds because they're right here for us. But the bigger crisis that's going on is this. You and I live with an army camped at the gates, ready to kill us because of our sin. When it comes to it, with the fact that the human condition is fundamentally broken, and if we're really honest, if we actually believe even the things we confessed, the real problem is that I'm the problem. We live in a state of alienation from God, the great king himself, having scorned him and having mocked him. And when we run to the answers to that problem that are fundamentally prideful, we end up mocking God. If our version of Christianity is to do the right things, and therefore God will love us, to keep the rules, and therefore God will accept us, to be able to say, hey, I did a good enough job, I lived a pretty good life, and therefore God's going to make heaven my home, please realize that answer isn't just biblically wrong. It's not just a misunderstanding of what the Bible says. It's actually a mocking of God to say, God owes me my salvation. I will take my salvation my way, not by turning to the true king of the earth, Jesus Christ. In Galatians 4, verse 8, Paul says that's actually returning to the wrong false gods. It's actually the very worst version of Belshazzar's sin, and it's the complete opposite of the humility that God calls through Daniel for both Belshazzar and you and me to have. We instead have to humble ourselves. We instead have to admit that we have been doing wrong, that we're actually, in this passage, Belshazzar. That we are the one who has arrayed ourselves against God. That we are the ones who have doubled down on the wrong answers. Otherwise, there's only for us, verse 24, death. Not just that we'll all die in this life like Belshazzar, but in the life to come. You and I have to take God seriously, both for this life and for eternal life. But you know the simple fact is this, we don't. Not so often, at least I don't. I so easily forget. And I bet you guys do too. We fall back to chasing those elemental principles of our world, forgetting who the true king of the earth is. Why? 
Well, let me suggest a lot of it is just because we can't see him. Just like Belshazzar had never seen evidence of God acting, and therefore he went the exact wrong way. Well, if we look at our world, doesn't it seem so much the same? I mean, I know I'm supposed to believe in him, but where is he? I mean, Jesus said he'd be back soon, and it's been 2,000 years. And he left the Holy Spirit in our hearts, but I can't see him. And so often, the invisible just doesn't hold me. I'm so terribly tied to what I can see and taste and touch and smell. So let me just suggest an example that might help. A doctor named Joseph Lister. In 1865, when he was in his prime, over half of surgery patients died. Not because of the surgeries, but because of infections. And so if you went in for a simple setting of a broken kneecap, there was a pretty good chance you were going to die from it. And Lister was apparently quite smart and a revolutionary guy, and he postulated that there was an unseen world that was causing all these deaths after surgeries. That the infection that would kill half or more of surgical patients was the result of unseen little things called microbes that would get in the wounds and infect them. So here's what he suggested. He said, surgeons should wash their hands between patients. Antiseptics should be used to kill those unseen things. They had to clean their surgical tools. And he was laughed at universally. Because everybody knew there couldn't be such a thing. Our senses didn't show it. So for over 10 years, until his mortality rates from his hospital dropped so much lower than anybody else's, until microscopes got invented and accepted. People, doctors, blew him off and many more people died. There was a generation of deaths because people wouldn't believe in something they couldn't see. But Joseph Lister was right. Just because you can't see something doesn't mean it's not there. The Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, is far more and far more powerful and far more good than whatever you and I tend to follow. Whatever God, literal or metaphorical, around which you and I organize our life. We need to take him seriously. And so I was working with a young man of South Asian background. I'd had the privilege of being part of leading him to Christ. He's become a Christian. I'm meeting him a week after he became a Christian for a cup of coffee and starts following Jesus. As we're sitting at this local coffee shop talking over things, it comes up that he lives with his girlfriend. Now, I don't know how it had never come up in all the meetings before, now it did. And that created this pastoral dilemma for me. I mean, you can't just ignore that. But I also don't want to give somebody grace and immediately like, slap him with law the moment they come to faith. Even more, this guy had come to faith out of a Hindu background. So I just, I had no idea what to say. And so I just sort of prayed and opened my mouth. And I end up saying, you know the Bible says you shouldn't really be doing that, right? He goes, no, Where? Oh, yeah, of course he doesn't know. He hasn't read it yet. I mean, he's read Mark. And so I said, well, okay, let me show you. So we open up the Bible, go to 1 Corinthians. We read through parts of 1 Corinthians. And he reads, he looks, he asks me a few questions, says, what does this mean? What does that mean? I mean, he closed his Bible, looked up, and he goes, then I shall stop. And I actually had to stop him from going home and kicking her out. <laughs> Because now he was taking God seriously. And in a wonderful new believer way, he wanted to do what God wanted. 
how would that kind of change happen in us? It'll happen the exact same way it happened in him. He had now seen the true king. He had seen the king of all the world, Jesus Christ. That king far greater than any human being, any human king, any Belshazzar, any Nebuchadnezzar. And seeing Jesus changed everything. So, brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Father, we have had a bare minimum time to look at these words you gave from so long ago. But we pray that they would work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. Take the things in us that would reject what we need and instead break them apart from us. And take the things we do need and sink them deep into our hearts and souls that we could be new people, new creations in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We pray in his name. Amen.